Episode 9, For the Development of Lighting. Written and directed by Sean Hybor. Performed by Ruth Mestel. Most of the people who knew me believed that I was pretty easy to predict. I'm surface level. Not complicated. Affable. Then again, I wouldn't have considered any of those people my friends. I'd hardly consider them acquaintances. They didn't know me at all. Honestly, no one did. I worked in a junior management position at a health service centre for over a decade. Just a short walk down from the street from Frankly Reservoir. But I never met any of my co-workers' spouses. I've never seen their kids. I've never had to pretend to care about their pets' names. Working there had been lonely, but that was by design. It was easier to separate cleanly from them later without any of the faux emotional distress. Eventually, every relationship ends. Forced obsolence. They'd spend a day, maybe two, shaking their heads randomly, muttering, It's so sad. She was so young. The office might even order a cake. Forever in our hearts, it would read. Initially, it was probably going to include my name, but it's just so hard to remember if there's an E-Y or just a Y at the end. I use IE for what it's worth. Then, I'll vanish from their memories forever. A phantom. (laughs) And I wasn't lying when I said this was by design. I wanted it this way. Everyone who knew me before Christmas thinks I've died. My mum left me when I was still in primary school. I woke up on a Saturday, the house empty. Still. Nana was sitting in her rocking chair, half asleep. She smiled when she saw me and handed me a pin like she had been fighting to stay awake just to hand it to me. It read, ready, ready, in block print. I laughed. Not this bullshit again. My mum was always talking about how she needed to move to the United States to work for IBM or NASA or Parallax Industries. She thought she belonged there. She didn't. She'd tell me about the 1939 World's Fair and the great innovators and how she was going to change the world. I told her I wouldn't go with her. I wanted to stay here where I felt like I belonged. My friends were here. We thought about it often. It was just the two of us and Nana, but we treated each other like enemies. I sat on the couch next to Nana and stared at the pin, rubbing my thumb over the smooth epoxy coating, willing myself to try and feel my mother's pull and waiting for her to come home. She never did. A 
A few months ago, I got the call that my mum had died while I was sitting in a meeting at work. I wish I could say I hadn't thought about her in ages, but that would be a lie. My phone was sitting on top of the notepad on the centre of the conference table. It vibrated and I silenced it quickly. I recognised the number from back home, but couldn't immediately place it, my mind cycling through the possibilities. The lights in the conference room dimmed to start a presentation on manageable growth opportunities. And finally, it hit me. I peeked at my phone's transcription. I was right. I had recognised the number. I sat amongst my co-workers, moving my eyes from one face to the next, all oblivious to my news. I didn't leave work that day. I didn't take any time off at all. No one asked questions or assumed anything. Like I said, no one has ever had to pretend to care about my family or what's going on in my life. No one knew that my mum had died and I certainly wasn't going to tell anyone. I remember holding the pin in my hand tempted to prick myself with the needle edge. Not enough to make myself bleed, really. Just enough to feel a little pain. I sat next to Nana for a lot of that morning. She didn't say much, slipping in and out of sleep. I made myself a sandwich. I read a few chapters of Michael Crichton's timeline, which I was only able to digest about 30% of. But my mum had just bought it and left it on the couch. It was supposed to be a big deal. And then Malik, my neighbour, knocked on my door to see if I wanted to go for a kickabout. He'd just got a new ball with the money he'd made helping his mum paint the house. I spent the rest of the day outside, staring out into the sky, wondering if I was ever going to see my mum again. I played football with Malik. I won, by the way. I read a news article about Facebook and how it's being used as a vessel to facilitate shady black market dealings, much in the way that Silk Road used to. You didn't need to travel to the abandoned, destitute corner of the internet anymore to advertise. It was just right there. On Facebook. If you are advertising, say, a kidney, you might find a buyer and make a shitload of money. Or you might get shut down. But if you get shut down, you just create another site. And then another. And another. An endless loop. Add infinitum until you finally find that buyer and make a shitload of money. Crazy shit can happen online these days. But I didn't have a kidney to sell. And I didn't really care about the money. I was going to sell my life. One exchange, no returns, start over from scratch. The indistinguishable qualities that make up who we are as human beings can always be altered. They're a part of who we are. We decide who we are and who we choose to be. My mum was always telling me about the person she wanted to become. That stuck with me. Honestly, 
Once I decided to sell my life, it was pretty easy to figure it out. I had a lot of disposable time and access to endless amounts of information. First, I quit my job. I collected my last paycheck. I cut all ties with everyone I knew. I wanted to give my co-workers one last night to remember me by. I set the date in mind. Christmas. After the holiday party. I'd show up, get hammered, say goodbye to everyone and then, on my way home, I'd drive my car off a fucking bridge. And then I was going to catch my flight to Colorado to bury my mum. Only a few months late. Once I put the ad up online, it only took a few hours before I started getting messages. Offers, some nefarious, some not. Desperate, please. Obviously, I'm not going to explain to you the exact process in which this was completed. I'm not daft. In fact, I'm not entirely sure how everything went down. I'm certainly not going to ask questions, because the less I truthfully know, the better. Beyond that, there are brokers for these sorts of things to make it all look legit. They handle every detail, as long as you have enough money. All I know is that my death and the subsequent life insurance money was traded for a new life of a young woman who grew up in the Ohio foster care system. The old me, the me from back home, would be erased, removed from existence. The night before the Christmas party, I drank a bottle of wine and took a couple of pills I had hidden in the back of my medicine cabinet. If it harms me, I let it in. I laid in bed and held the pin that my mum had given me so many years earlier, rubbing my thumb over the smooth coating, willing myself to try and feel my mother's pull. Laid out around me, like a ceremonial offering to the gods of a new life, were my credentials. The proof that new Charlie exists as soon as old Charlie is gone. I hear the sound coming through the floorboards in my house. Slow, wooden creaks. Rising, cold and hollow, moving through the back of my eyes. I try to sit up, but my body is frozen. My arms are weights sinking into the side of the bed. My throat narrows. Still adjusting to the darkness, I see two floating orbs, yellow and cloudy. I assume them to be eyes. They're not motionless, but they linger in one spot, staring back at me, not blinking. I struggle to regain control of my body. And then, they disappear. I listen for any sounds. It's still. My body starts to thaw out. My breathing returns to normal. 
I stand and walk to the bedroom window, using my hands to peer through the drawn curtains. Out in the field, I can see the figure of a woman. She stands with her own direction facing my own. The darkness obscures her face, but I can see in the place of her eyes are two glowing orbs. I call out to her. Mother? Mother? It's me. And then the lights disappear. The pull is gone. I flip on the light and look around my room. Had I been asleep? My arms tingle and my skin feels warm. I switch off the light again and start off back to bed. I close the curtains fully, stopping to consider what I just felt before laying down. And then I use my hand to gently move the curtains aside, just enough to take one last good look at the dark. I watch the mountain rising up through the snow, the greys and dark blues showing only at the crest. The sun was setting and a pink blanket was covering the sky. The child next to me peeked their head over my shoulder to share my view. I leaned back in my chair and let them have it, free from obstruction. I had never been on a plane before. I'm not sure I care for it. My mum thought she was going to change the world. She thought that her purpose was to serve humanity. I was an obstacle in her path. She may have, in some way, helped towards the betterment of someone other than herself. But I'll never know it. I only have a few memories of her. Some are vivid and easy to recall, and some are stories that Nana told me of her. They've blended together. Her memories are my own. But I remember the stories my mum used to tell me about what she truly believed was her purpose. Progress. When I was a child, my mum told me a bedtime story on a night I had trouble sleeping. My small little mind was having trouble grasping the idea of what happens when... Well, when your car goes crashing off a fucking bridge. What happens next? She did her best to explain finality. She told me a story about innovation. About a mysterious cartel consisting of all companies that manufactured light bulbs and conspiring together. They had the ability to create a bulb that would last longer and work more efficiently. But instead, they all created an inferior design that would burn out, forcing everyone to buy more products. The idea that financial gain of these companies outweighed the benefit of humanity horrified me as a child. But now, I see it differently. I see how inevitable this life is, 
and how my mum understood that she only had a small window of time to do something for the greater good. She didn't abandon me, in her eyes. I just didn't fit into her plan. Everything, eventually, burns out. I'm here now. It's been 13 weeks. Maybe I'll get to know some people when I'm here. Learn their kids' names, meet their spouses. I'm going to be here for as long as it takes to find out who my mother was and why she needed to leave her daughter to come out here. When I find out who she is, I can ask her myself. The closer I get to learning about her, the more I feel her pull on me. She's close. I believe my mother is alive. And I have the rest of my new life to find her. For the Development of Lighting was written and directed by Sean Hybor. This episode was performed by Ruth Mestel. You can hear Ruth in Season 2 of Directive, which will be released in 2020. The Constance theme song is written and performed by Quiet Theory. If you've stuck around this long, please know how much I appreciate your support. Only one episode remains in this season of Constance. Stay tuned. You can learn more about Constance on Twitter at ConstancePod, or check out our website at ConstancePodcast.com.